You know, I think there's a maybe a loose connection here with the Truman Show because they're all triangulating Truman's experience, trying to, you know, essentially gaslighting him, trying to get him to stay on the island. And, oh, he's being crazy in different things. When you start to challenge culture, whether it's in your family system, whether it's the economic system, political issues, you know, people are going to gaslight you. They're going to persecute you and, and say um, that you're not okay because it makes people uncomfortable. Consciousness. The notion of the self. Personality structure. Transactional analysis. Symbiosis. Zen Buddhism. Teacher-student relationships. Training yourself in how to think. To subvert is to undermine the existing system of inscribed power and authority. What's happening in the digital space? The virtual world. Much of us live in a hyper-stimulated present where language itself has become the info currency in the sequence of corporate capitalism. The injunction of the virtual world is... The gatekeepers of our speech and written word are global tech monopolies. We cannot transcend or go beyond our lack through craving. What are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? The subversive therapist is about what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Andrew Archer. Thanks for listening. Today, I wanted to pick up where I left off in the last episode talking about the book, The Memory Police, in the context of explaining the kind of conformist mentality of hyper-individualism, this idea that we're all self-determined and self-reliant. In the book, The Memory Police, uh, in the end, the individuals of the island where these periodic disappearances are happening, they just kind of throw up their hands and adapt to these problems, not unlike how we know about the climate emergency or racism and white supremacy and, and what guns do to people in the United States, but there's another mass shooting, uh, the temperatures are rising, uh, the police are killing three people a day, and we sort of just throw up our hands and say, well, there's nothing I can do about it. So there's this broad sense of powerlessness that we all feel, but of course, powerlessness is really useful um, as an individual because connecting with that emotion, you realize you do have the power to connect emotionally with other people. And in the book, The Memory Police, they don't solve this problem of the disappearances or the enforcement of those disappearances by the memory police because they're all these single separate individuals and they can't come together I think by by way of this indoctrination into thinking you're self-determined and you do everything on your own. And this is a segue into what transactional analysis calls the life script. It means a pre-conscious life plan based on a decision made as a little person in terms of how your life is going to turn out. And the script is followed because it answers three questions. Who am I? What am I supposed to do with my life? And who are these other people? Provides ready-made answers to those things. There's elements of the script that are, of course, taken from the, the culture you were raised in. And this hyper-individualistic culture in the United States is, you know, the kind of conditioning that we're, it's kind of the water that we're swimming in. And just like a fish in water doesn't 
comment on the fact that they're in water, we're not even aware of what we're completely embedded in, in this individualistic uh, frame of reference. So even though it appears we're operating autonomously or we're self-determined, we're following this external programming in the form of directives and injunctions from our caregivers. Uh, those voices in our head that seem like our own thoughts are actually conditioned or trained into us. And this is driven by the adaptations we developed as kids. So it's that psychological part or that psycho part of the child ego state is the script-based behavior. And the script is really about understanding human destiny, uh, what we're likely to do in the future. And I think the virtual world is reinforcing each of our own scripts because it allows us to operate from that adapted state of mind, that archaic child ego state, that part that is all of our psychological trauma is we're forever wanting and identifying with this part of us that wants, and that's perpetuating psychological games which promote the life script. So as a way to talk about the life script, I want to use the example of Truman Burbank, played by Jim Carrey in the the movie The Truman Show. He's adopted by a TV corporation, and it appears that he's making his own decisions and leading a life of his own, but actually everything is fabricated and constructed for him. It's fictitious. Everyone is an actor around him. And so to flip the script, as they say in transactional analysis, is to be a real person and not just be going by the commands of your cultural conditioning. Eric Byrne talked about disobeying the parent ego state specifically uh, in order to actually start thinking independently. Many of these scripts have a don't think injunction uh, and think of Jim Carrey in the movie The Truman Show whenever he would talk about leaving Sea Haven, going off beyond the island, traveling to Fiji, everyone would discount uh, his feelings about that and say, oh, you can't leave the island. You're terrified of boats or the sea or any of this stuff. Uh, so it's these discounts, these injunctions, directives uh, that need to be understood. And transactional analysis is one method to do that. This development of the Truman Show, uh, the, the show within the movie for Jim Carrey's character, all this stuff is happening before he has any sort of uh, conscious awareness. So there's all this programming going on for him. And it's it's analogous to what happens for us in general. Uh, this includes your name, the people that came before you, uh, but some of the the other elements of the, the script really depend on how your parents raised you. And so there's two concepts in transactional analysis. One is attributions and one is injunctions. So the attributions are, you know, how you're supposed to live your life, the things they told you to do, the kind of directives. And, and then in contrast, the injunctions are the negation of activity, what you're not supposed to do. In my upbringing, the thing was don't have sex until you're married. So that was an injunction, something not to do. The attributions were related to productivity, uh, busyness, you know, not sitting around, not being lazy, 
you're kind of uh, conditioned around being sober, rational, uh, under control, that kind of thing. And so when we think about Truman Burbank in the, the film The Truman Show, what's happening is, you know, he's quite literally being controlled. Christoph is the television producer, the creator of the show. He sits up in the moon with um, some other employees, and they're overseeing Truman's life. They're coordinating the cameras and the recording devices that are all around uh, this fictitious town called Sea Haven. It's a constructed Hollywood set. It's it's domed, so it looks like there's a sky, uh, but it's all a, a kind of mirage. There's water. Uh, it's supposed to be the sea. It's this, you know, island community kind of thing. And one of the things they do is they make sure that Truman doesn't leave the island. So they, they create this scene where his father appears. It's not really his father, but in the show, is supposed to be his father uh, dies in this boating accident to kind of construct a phobia for Truman. That's part of who he is, is afraid of boats and, and that sort of thing. Um, and really, with this kind of orchestration of actors and and Kristoff's ability to control the weather and all these things, uh, Truman doesn't have to think for himself at all. Uh, in the same way, like when we talked about symbiosis between a mother and an infant, the infant doesn't doesn't and cannot do any thinking for herself at that newborn age. So the mother has to do all the thinking for her. Okay, so what else about uh, the Truman Show that's uh, relevant? You know, the the script doesn't doesn't define every single behavior the person does. It's these larger trends in terms of marriage, divorce, going crazy, suicide, you know, in general, the kind of cause of death, the time of death. Uh, For example, I have a client whose father, um, when when the father was 16, their dad um, died of a heart attack. So fast forward, this father um, dies when my client is 16 years old. Uh, The type of death uh, is different, but the time of death is the same. And when we've been working together, this client and myself, you know, we've talked about kind of the script is just sort of a waiting one, waiting for death, waiting for a mental health crisis, waiting to become suicidal, waiting to get a partner or to start a family. And so it's a a form of uh, passivity for this person. So the, the script analysis is really helpful for the, the person to understand kind of the trajectory of their life, where things are headed. And in the show for Truman, you know, he wants to go off script. He wants to find this, this woman that he kind of fell in love with on um, the set. And so he almost has a kind of existential crisis that, that looks like a, a psychotic break because he's, he's acting out of the ordinary. And, it, and I would just refer to it as kind of child ego state uh, energy and behavior. You know, he's with his friend at the, the store and he turns around and starts yelling and clapping to see if any of the people would change their behavior, which they don't. Um, there's a kind of heightened awareness uh, in his uh, presentation. One of the common scripts is a mindlessness script. And that's where I think we can 
we can use the Truman Show as an example. Um, everything is orchestrated for him. Uh, it's all actors playing roles. Um, he can never get hurt. It's completely safe and predictable. You know, he has this monotonous kind of job uh, that he doesn't really like. He goes home and, and puts together uh, magazine clippings trying to trying to recreate the face of, of this woman that he's in love with. And I don't think that's unlike what's happening in the, the virtual world because most people are not happy with the work they're doing, which is essentially uh, data um, management, inputting data, tracking, uh, very analytical skills. We talked about this becoming this kind of manager of ourselves. And so he retreats into kind of this fantasy trying to find uh, this woman because he's not actually doing any thinking for himself until he decides uh, to kind of leave uh, the island and that's the the climax of the the show so this mindlessness script is where you're conditioned to not think and in a lot of families uh, the injunction was don't think drink so you have families where you, especially in the kind of farming communities where I am in southern Minnesota you know you work and work and work you work all day but then when you're done working, you don't think about things, you don't study stuff, you just drink. Uh, so it's a kind of mindlessness script because this, the kind of work you're doing is not necessarily as cognitively engaging, uh, but it allows you to follow this predictable script. That's the, that's the thing with the script itself. It answers a few questions for you. It says, who, who am I is one of the questions. Um, what do I do in terms of my life? And, and who are these other people? That's what the script uh, provides for you based on the decision when you're a kid. Here's how I'm going to uh, live my life. And the issue with this mindlessness script, and that's what I think comes through in the Truman Show when he starts kind of acting crazy in a way, is that if you're not actually thinking for yourself, and then especially in a situation where you do have to do some thinking, there's uh, this sense that you're going to go crazy. And that's kind of the, the bridge I want to make here. The virtual world, you know, uh, the, what Berardi calls the global Silicon Valley, Facebook, the Microsoft, Google, Amazon, you know, the virtual space that we're embedded in, the injunction there is don't think. You know, Google wants to do all the thinking for you to predict your uh, text messages, whether it's in the email, they want to remember everything for you in your calendar. They want to send you notifications, uh, birthday reminders, um, you know, anticipating, you know, different events, advertisements, etc. They don't, they don't say you don't need to think, but that's, that's the underlying message to our psychology is uh, don't think, just want. Whatever you want is what you get. You know, let us do all of uh, the thinking for you. And I just wonder if there isn't a connection between that and the fact that the mental health rates are skyrocketing. It's such an epidemic in the United States, specifically suicide, especially among very young people, children, even uh, committing suicide, is, I think, has something to do with this uh, competitive digital world that they're enmeshed in um, paired with loneliness, economic um, 
issues, precarity of, of work for sure. But this injunction of don't think uh, and in a way, don't think about yourself even, even though everything is about yourself and this individualistic um, culture, what it's saying is we'll tell you who you are based on what you've liked, what you've wanted in the past. Um, the way Eric Byrne talked about script was uh, a kind of crude way. He said there's winning scripts, there's losing scripts, and then there's non-winner. Uh, script. So it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, I can use my own family as an example. My father was a real estate agent, had his own business, very successful. Believe it or not, uh, my oldest sibling is a real estate agent, kind of took over his business. Uh, following that sort of worn path, or in the same way for myself, going into psychotherapy, my, my mother's a physical therapist. So these aren't you know, uh, detached by any stretch of the imagination. You know, there's four kids in my family of origin. I have three kids now. There's all these, you know, very correlated things uh, going on. I could go on and on into that stuff. So understanding your script, uh, you have to understand the games that you play, um, psychological games, because Games are a way to structure your time. Of course, they're void of intimacy, but those are the things that uh, perpetuate this life script because we learned those games when we were a kid. You know, you learned cops and robbers or hide and go seek, these things uh, when you were a little kid. And what happens in those games is there's a, an emotional payoff. You know, you're waiting for the person who's it for hide-and-go-seek to come and discover you, to kind of bust you. Uh, and then you get a jolt of an emotion, or the same way with cops and robbers. You bust the person, you catch them. There's an emotional kind of payoff. And this is the way we're, you know, structuring our time. And it, it amounts to these uh, what are called drama triangles, these, these three roles, the persecutor, rescuer, and victim roles that we move between these different uh, roles and most of it is about trying to ground ourselves as being either superior or inferior but then we switch we competitively switch in interpersonal uh, relationships I'll give a, an example of a game that I've noticed recently with a, a specific client um, who their mother would play this game, I'm only trying to help you, is what it's called. So the person starts behaving sort of irrationally and erratically, and the mother tries to rescue them and take care of them, but the person, my client, isn't asking them for help. Uh, and they're, in fact, they're actually saying, no, I'm okay but they're in competition with the mother because the mother's saying, no, you're not okay. Uh, and then these things escalate. They get into arguments and, you know, the extreme. Uh, a door was uh, almost broken off of a car and there was a hospitalization. Uh, but this person gets themselves into situations where other people are trying to help them. They're saying, no, I don't need help, even though they're doing things quite bizarre that imply uh, that they're not okay and that they need 
help, which I can certainly relate to um, from my own own background. So the catch is to understand the games you play with people as a means to to understand the larger life script. I mean, in my in my background, in terms of psychology, I had a a great grandfather who hung himself in 1925, uh, discovered uh, by my grandfather, who was in his 20s at the time. He also discovered his um, brother, who was using carbon monoxide in a car to kill himself, which he did. Uh, so he he discovered his brother. My grandfather had these similar kind of highs and lows characteristic of, of manic depression. Uh, lo and behold, uh, his son, my dad, was diagnosed with manic depression in the 80s, and then I was as well, and some of my siblings, which I document in a, a memoir called Pleading Insanity. And what, how I can look at these now socially is that they were all what are called drama triangles or, or aspects of games. It's hard to understand the games out, you know, in the historical context of it, but <clears throat> how it... How it typically worked was uh, usually my mom would say to us, oh, you know, your dad is not okay to some degree. Um, You know, he's depressed or he's getting manic or whatever. And we would, as kids, because we didn't know any different, we understood that 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 was true. That was reality. So the way she was saying things was that he was not okay. So then we adopt that frame of reference because we're, as little kids, you're subordinated almost into this sort of victim role because the parents say, well, it's my way or the highway. You know, I'm your parent. I know what's right and wrong for you. You know, this, this authoritative um, conditioning in a way. And so then when we were in relationship with my dad, we already had this idea that he was not okay and that we we um, operated in certain ways um, because of that. You know, I think there's a maybe a loose connection here with the Truman Show because they're all triangulating Truman's experience, trying to, you know, essentially gaslighting him, trying to get him to stay on the island and, oh, he's being crazy in different things. When you start to challenge culture, whether it's in your family system, whether it's the economic system, political issues, you know, people are going to gaslight you. They're going to persecute you and and say um, that you're not okay because it makes people uncomfortable. So what else do we want to talk about in terms of the life script? We have the injunctions, the attributions, um, you know, it's a it's a preconscious kind of decision as a as a young kid, basically how you're going to live out your life. So, with my script became this you know manic depressive uh, script, and that the the recurrence of episodes, and that this this is a phenomenon innate to the biology. You know, it's a it's a genetic predisposition. This is, you know, what psychiatry, how it understands uh, bipolar disorder. But my understanding is actually if you can give up the games associated with it, the drama, 
that these episodes, so-called episodes, uh, don't happen. And uh, what I could see historically in my presentation and certainly in my father's was actually child ego state, uh, uh, specifically this psycho part, the psychological or the adaptive part of the child ego state, you know, finally getting free, because if you're told not to think, which I was told, don't think, follow the Catholic Church, you know, don't have sex before marriage, this this kind of waiting or a kind of untell script, you know, you can't have fun until your chores are done kind of thing. These are all little threads that you can start to, uh, to put together, specifically in, in psychotherapy, but even just reading uh, some of these models. Uh, what it amounted to in my situation was there wasn't a lot of play. And I can understand this now from having kids is that they want to play. They don't want to stay in the parent and adult ego state all day, you know, being more rational, more sober. Like they want to be goofy. They want to run around. Uh, they don't care about the heat or the cold, you know. They're in this different uh, state of mind. I think that's, like I've said, it's that psychological part of us, the psycho part that we're all trying to suppress, we're trying not to look crazy. Uh, and so there's a lot of energy to that, but that part comes out anyway. So you can't suppress it, you have to really get to know this, what amounts to a kind of little Donald Trump in our heads. And each of our conditioning is unique. That's what's so interesting about human nature. We're basically all the same, but we have these unique aspects of the personality structure that if you can get control of, and my emphasis is Zen Buddhist meditation practice to look at yourself to control uh, this part that craves, that wants, uh, you know, the, the underpinnings of, of these, you know, dramatic psychological episodes for me, and I think for most others, is that the at the heart of it is a kind of yearning for connection. What I talked about in terms of the functions of the parent, adult, and child ego states is that it's about control, choice, and connection. The parent tries to control by conditioning others and their ways of their dogma, their ways of thinking. The adult gives you the choice of what do you pay attention to. And then the child is about connection. We connect with other people based on our story, but what's what's happening in the individualistic frame, this hyper-individualism, is that that story, that child part of you, is you. That is reality. There's just a solid entity self at the center um, of your head. The center of the skull is who you are. And so bringing it back to the Truman Show, in the end, he exits the set and he's talking to Christoph, played by Ed Harris, and he says, was none of it real? And Ed Harris says, you were real. You know, he says, you were, you were the star. And it's kind of the, the, the koan in Buddhism. It's like, am I real? Do I exist as a solid entity self? The, the idea of who I am, is that real? And it's always a fabrication. It's always a fiction, and I love transactional analysis because it says there's these three processes. Uh, but which one am I is kind of the question, the parent, adult, and child, and you're all of them and you're none of them because each state of mind is 
basically a different person, a different personality. You know, you can think of the example from the, the Pixar movie Inside Out, where you have these different emotions are all like separate characters and they they go to the little terminal and, and control the, the individual um, Riley, I believe her name is in the in the movie. So you have joy, you have anger, disgust, fear, sadness. Um, but what's wrong about that movie is, I mean, it's a an animated <laughs> movie, so I won't be too, you know, critical parent here. But what's wrong, terribly wrong about that movie, is there isn't the feeling, and then the terminal that that sends the message um, to Riley, the the feeling or the state of mind, the parent, adult, and child, that is consciousness. Even though it feels like, oh, I'm in the parent state right now as I'm explaining this stuff on the podcast and, you know, adult awareness, et cetera. But uh, it's just these different people popping up online, just like the different emotions pop up. But there isn't the, the person and then the control of the person. And let me explain what I mean feels like I can say, oh, I'm in the adult state, as if there's this bifurcation between me and the state of mind. The state of mind and the awareness of the state of mind are the same thing. This is what Buddhism talks about in terms of the subject-object problem. The ego or self uh, is an object, so we have subjectivity. We say, oh, I'm me, and here's how I experience the world. But you can only have that subjectivity if you objectify yourself. So the, the, the experiencer of experience, you know, experience is in the mind, the experiencer of experience is the same thing. There isn't an experiencer and then there's experience. They're, they're one thing in, in a sense because to say, you know, I went for a bike ride today is there, there wasn't a separate entity that was riding the bike. It just, it seems like I have that experience. Having is the key word here. Because in this individualistic culture, it's what Eric Fromm called the having mode. You know, possession and property are, you know, the sort of, sort of vaulted, the sort of zenith of, um, of the culture that that's the most important thing is that power status and so you make everything into a thing or an object including ourselves so our sense of self becomes an asset and so we got to improve that thing and buddhism goes the other direction and says well that supposed thing is actually an illusion it feels like there's a me who has this subjectivity about what's going on and can explore the contents of my mind that's separate from my body, etc. So I'm getting way off track here and I'm disorganized. Maybe this is <laughs> maybe this is a good way to have a podcast or maybe it's not. We'll see. But in short, check out uh, The Truman Show with Jim Carrey. You know, rent it. It's very subversive. We could talk about it in a totally different way. Uh, in terms of this sort of surveillance capitalism that we're living in, in the virtual space where everything is tracked and monitored and they're trying to predict what we're going to do next, what we want next uh, as a form of, 
of, of social control so we can get what we want in terms of uh, consumerism. In the same way, you know, Truman is tracked at every moment of his existence, but it's this pre-programmed script. Here, He's going to be Truman Burbank in Sea Haven. Here's how he's going to live his life. That's, that's, you know, a way to think about the script. Like, what is your pre-programming? What are the things that you feel like are reality? And the, the main thing is this idea of autonomy and self-determination, which, again, is right out of this, this um, individualistic kind of playbook, is that everything we do is about me, but I'm determining what I'm going to do. I'm in control uh, but as we can see from using this model uh, with transactional analysis, is actually, no, there's a bunch of different people vying uh, for control. But even, even understanding consciousness and language itself, you didn't learn it on your own. You were taught language by people. So it's a relational process that became the kind of fabric for this internal seems like an internal separate process is actually just your parent ego state adult child all coming online at different times that were conditioned uh, for you and so this is really about going beyond your uh, cultural conditioning going beyond this script not just rebelling against it you know example is my family i went i went atheist quickly after college to rebel against the the kind of conservative catholic script but I was still following that that idea of don't think and and be engaged with God and, and the different tenets of Christianity, etc. I was still using that as the guidepost to say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's rebelling against the script. To go beyond the script is to actually to be thinking for yourself. So Byrne, you know, uses figures to to outline this that the adult ego state is contaminated to some degree by both the parent and the child, meaning it's overlapped. And the contaminations are uh, delusions from the parent and illusions in the child. So the delusion is that you're totally autonomous and you're doing all this thinking on your own. The, these these thoughts weren't conditioned and programmed into you. Uh, you're doing the thinking for yourself uh, is is one of the these kind of delusions. And then the, the illusion uh, in the child ego state is what he refers to as waiting for Santa Claus. It's like you have this idea about yourself. For me, lately, it's been publishing this book that I'm working on. Is that you're just waiting for this thing to happen, like you wait for Santa Claus to come on Christmas, and he's going to deliver this thing that you want. You know, I get this book deal or whatever it is, and then you're going to be okay. That's this kind of illusion. And so... Really, the virtual space is, you know, dangling that carrot for us in terms of followers, likes. You know, we're in competition in all these social worlds. And if we just get to this level, we're going to be okay. That's the real um, illusion there. Is that, well, just if we get a little more of this or, you know, in the real world, if we get a little more money or we're more famous or something is like, then that's going to make me feel okay. I'm going to go, I'm not going to have this sense of lack or this idea that I'm not good enough, that that will resolve it. If I just get this new car, this new girlfriend or whatever it is, that's an illusion that you have to uh, become the lack 
is what David Lloyd talks about in, in Lack and Transcendence, that it's like a, a fire. You know, there's lots of different ways to put out a, a fire, dump water on it. Uh, but to become the lack is like to be the the wood, which is the fuel for the fire, um, is to let it burn out. So these these insecurities, these sense, this sense of lack is like let you become the lack is the idea. And koan practice is one of the the ways that you can work with this sort of doubt because a, a Zen koan is, is a spiritual problem that's meant to be solved or answered and it's impossible to answer, yet you're supposed to answer it. Uh, and you do that within a teacher and a student um, relationship. And that's what we'll get into as well as this idea of teacher-student relationships. And we can use the transactional analysis framework to talk about that. We can use Zen philosophy to understand that as as a means to kind of answer the question, what do we do about what we know about the virtual world and how it's really an exploitative uh, system that's engineered to keep us on the machines, to want to be on the machines. I mean, even if you're listening to this now, you're probably doing something else at the same time. And we're really, with that multitasking, we're contaminating the adult ego state because we're not paying attention to our environment. We're not objectively processing things. What we're doing is something habitual that we know how to do, right? You can ride a bike, chew gum, and you know listen to music at the same time. The parent is the one that's going to ride the bike because you quote unquote know how to ride a bike. But then the child is free to say, oh, I want to do this. Well, I'm watching uh, you know, a movie. I'm going to check my email or I'm going to do this or that. That is basically us going back and forth, the parent coming online, then the child, then the parent, then the child, back and forth, back and forth. Um, it's not a surprise why most people have attention uh, deficits. I almost chuckle when people come into my office saying they think they have ADHD because no one has an attention span more than about eight or nine seconds these days. And why? Because we have this electric high definition stimulation that will uh, resolve any boredom uh, or any need want, desire at any moment, but real concentrated attention uh, is about destimulation and working with less and less, emptying out uh, is the idea. And that's where meditation practice uh, delivers a very, you know, potent, succinct way of getting back your attention, getting back your focus so that you can work on your relationships. How do you meet uh, what's going on in the world? So I think we'll leave it there. But our inspiration is, you know, Truman exiting his constructed reality, his virtual reality that he's living in. He chooses, even though he's terrified, you know, just like <laughs> I was talking to a friend today who's can't seem to delete the Facebook app, you know, get off of Facebook, this fear of missing out. It's like, are you going to be a real person in the real world like Truman decides to do when he leaves? Um, or are you going to stay in the virtual place and get these fake little dopamine hits, you know, you know, you can pacify that child uh, part of you is kind of the, the dilemma here. Uh, what's interesting as just a side note to conclude here with the, the Truman show uh, in the actual script for the original movie, what wasn't in the movie is that he steps out of that, uh, you know, that, that door, in the horizon, 
It's kind of, it's a really interesting metaphor, you know, to go beyond the horizon. You know, a horizon seems like a thing. You look out, oh, that's the line, right? But as you approach the horizon, it disappears. Again, so he goes right into the horizon. It's a sort of horizonless uh, moment for Truman where he's stepping into the unknown. And what does he say? In case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. He, he's reflecting that he made up a persona named Truman Burbank and that it seems so real. Uh, certainly for the people watching the show, right, is like a worldwide phenomenon. It's like he made this persona, just like we make these profiles, these avatars of ourselves that seem so real, but it's a, it's a fiction, it's a fabrication. And so do you want to hold on to that just because it feels good, or do you want to exit? So he exits that uh, scene in the original script. He steps out, and he's standing uh, below a billboard, that's for him, for his show, The Truman Show. And it says something to the effect of, uh, you know, happy birthday, Truman, complete or total human record. So you have a complete record of Truman Burbank. All the things he's done, you know, is this Truman Show. We're, we're creating through our symbiotic relationship with the virtual world, a total human record of ourselves. Now, if... The global Silicon Valley has that power, that control, the possibilities for what we choose. That's that's a dangerous kind of relationship. It's the relationship between a mother and an infant, where the mother knows everything about the baby. Baby knows nothing about the mother. We're in that predicament with the virtual world, and the more we feed it, you know, is like just more microphones and cameras in Sea Haven for Truman. We're making a more and more sophisticated persona, and it's it's certainly approaching uh, reality. Our online persona, you know, when Trump was in office, they didn't say, you know, Trump must have logged in to Twitter this morning, and then he, you know, belted out this stupid, racist, xenophobic tweet. What they say is the president said blah blah blah, and I try and watch very little news, but. Almost all news programs are just programs about what people are posting online. And so it's this perpetuation of a virtual space within other forms of virtual spaces. You know, television is a construction in a way. If anybody's ever been on the news or done an interview, it's totally constructed. They have the idea of what's going to be on the program before they even interview you. It doesn't matter. Uh, so we're living in this fantasy world and i think it's scary to leave it and exit it but i think more people feel trapped by facebook than really want to be on there and so this is what we got to do is to exit like truman does and i'll i'll sign off uh there thanks for listening i'm andrew archer the subversive therapist